0: Well, the assertion that Jesus has supreme authority over every molecule of your existence is probably the most polarizing and self-sorting and jarring statement that will ever come across. And that statement was made by Jesus. Let me say that again, the assertion that Jesus has authority over every molecule of your existence is the most polarizing, self-sorting, and jarring statement that you will ever come across, and it was made by Jesus. And it connects to the passage that we've just read. It connects to the passage that we are going to study today. You know, For this reason, because Jesus, frankly, is so polarizing, more polarizing than I think anyone ever has ever lived in, in, in history Because he's so polarizing, people that like the idea of Jesus or cannot deny the supernatural uh, witness of Jesus have sought to soften the edges of Jesus' message. They've sought to reduce him, to pull the bottom out of his message to the point where he's more palatable, right? They've sought to, some have sought to make him more squishy like a mystic guru walking around spouting out Unitarian humanistic niceties. I was taking a shower the other day and I, I, we used this, this soap, Castile soap, and it's like made by some universalist hippie company. And I was reading all the words on there and it was like Buddha and some other, and then there was like Jesus's words just tucked right in there. And I was like, get away from me, soap. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I cast it out in the shower, no, joking. Uh, Get off me. We love to soften the edges of the message of Christ. But here's the reality. Jesus, listen to me, Jesus said he owned it all. He wasn't just a nice guy or a good prophet who just walked around doing the miraculous or giving little helpful talks and and practical tidbits on how to live life. He came claiming to be the king of the universe and his disciples believed it so much so that they lost their heads for it. And John had a vision on the island of Patmos in which the title deed to the cosmos could only be opened by the lamb, meaning Jesus alone has all authority to all of the heavens. And Jesus said that, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have any part with me. Unless any man leaves his father and his mother and follows me, he has no part with me. These were the words of Jesus. He created a strict binary. He said, either you're in this kingdom or you're in that kingdom, and someday there'll be a great sorting. Sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares. Jesus said all of this, this is, this is his words. I say that it's self-selecting because Jesus is so polarizing, it has this effect on people where they willingly want to choose one of two paths when it, when it comes to Jesus. Okay, people, when, when, when Jesus uh, is seen for who he truly is and what he truly claims, they either crucify him or they embrace him. And, and that's the reality. Now. Where am I getting this? Where do I see that Jesus is claiming this kind of authority, this measure of sovereignty over the universe? Well, I'm getting it from our text, okay? And I'm I'm getting it because Jesus' favorite name for himself was the name identified by the figure in our text. Jesus used this phrase, the Son of Man, more than any other phrase to explain who he was. And there's multiple reasons for that. One of the reasons was it was a less well-known messianic title, So it slowed down the process of his fame getting out. But make no mistake, those that studied the scriptures knew exactly who the Son of Man was. He was the Messiah. And interestingly, the Messiah sharing glory with Yahweh, which, ask the Jews, they'll tell you God doesn't share his glory, but yet he does with this figure. Jesus identifies himself with this figure. And he does so most explicitly two places in the New Testament. Uh, you can write them down and study them later. The first one is, is tucked right within what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's, it's some of Jesus' final words to his disciples. And it, and it all starts because the disciples are looking at the temple and they're going, wow, look at this thing, it's so great. And Jesus goes, yeah, it's all going to be destroyed. And it, and it, and it sort, of kick, sort of kicks off this conversation about the end of the age. And they start asking Jesus, when is the end of the age going to be? And Jesus takes that opportunity to disciple his disciples regarding the end of all things, the eschaton. That's where we get the word eschatology, the end of things. And, and, he, and he begins to try to prepare them for all of this stuff that's going to happen, the wars that are going to come and the persecution that's going to come. And it's in this place that he deploys the name Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man will come on the clouds. And when he does, watch out, the kingdom is here. Right, So it encouraged the disciples. But there's another place that he deployed the Son of Man most explicitly, and that place had a very different effect. It didn't encourage people, it got him killed. And it's in Mark chapter 14, you don't need to go there, but I'll tell you, uh, Jesus is standing before the high priest, the, the, the Sanhedrin, um, in, in Caiaphas' home, in this illegal trial in the middle of the night, and they're questioning him, and they're, they're trying to find something that they can hang him with, right? And they bring all these false witnesses about uh, how he said he destroyed the temple, but none of them are lining up. And so after all that, the high priest questions Jesus and says, are you in fact the Messiah? And Jesus saves him some time. He says, I'll tell you who I am. He said, they asked him directly, are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed. And Jesus said, note it, this is Mark 14, 62. I am and you will see the son of man seated on the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. It is so explicit that Jesus connects himself to this figure. There is, it's irrefutable. And look at the reaction it has. The high priest tore his garments, which is classic drama queen for, for the Jews of the day, right? Tore his garments and says, what further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving to death. And he was dead in a matter of hours. What was it about this title that Jesus described to himself that was so threatening and so blasphemous to Jesus that it got him killed? What was it about this title that Jesus reserved it uh, for for this moment where he finally goes, yeah, I'm the son of man, now now do your worst on the cross, right, that's what we're gonna find out today and what I really want you to see in this introduction, I just want you to understand that Jesus connects himself to this title, this title is the key, it's the key to understanding who Jesus wanted us to see him as, it's the key to understanding his identity and it's the key to understanding his agenda for human history. Those two things are so important. Today, we pick back up in the narrative of, uh, or in the, the text of Daniel chapter seven. We started it last week, we looked at verse one through seven. We pick back up in this dramatic unfolding of Daniel's vision in chapter seven. I told you last week, this is part of what is called apocalyptic literature, and I told you last week that we get that from the, word, the Greek word apocalypsis, which means what, you guys remember? Unveiling. We'll go back and preach last week's sermon again. Okay. Uh, unveiling. Apocalypse means unveiling. It's to pull away the curtain. And what we're seeing in this, in this section of Daniel is that God for a moment is elevating Daniel out of the physical dimension into the spiritual realm. And he's allowing him to see the backside of the screen. He's allowing him to see human events from a spiritual perspective. And what he sees is he sees that that humanity continues to manifest itself and recapitulate over and over in the form of these terrifying and terrible and destructive predatory beasts. And these beasts each are meant to describe these subsequent world-ruling empires, starting with Babylon, the the nation that at this particular moment uh, that this was written, uh, Israel was under exile, or under uh, the authority of. The, the first is this lion with great eagle's wings representing Babylon, right? And then we learn and we see, Daniel sees that the wings are torn away. The lion stands up as though uh, a man for a time. They referred to, to the humanness of Nebuchadnezzar that was given him for a moment. And then the next beast comes and, and it's this uh, great bear, right? You can see it up there, this great bear with, with uh, lunch in its mouth, with these three ribs. Okay, and it just devoured essentially Babylon. Now, this, this next great beast. And then the bear gives way to the next empire, the next beast, which is this four headed leopard. Okay, the leopard with four heads. Uh, and, and this represented Greece and Alexander the Great and that empire. What God is doing is he's naming the future events that would take place and how human, uh, human evil and human dominion would rise up time and time again and remanifest itself over the course of history. The culmination of it is found in the fourth beast, the fourth beast that has no simile in the text. There's no animal that is described, able to describe this beast. And it's the beast that most uh, captivates the attention of Daniel. It, we'll see next week that he, he asks the angel standing by, he says, what's with the fourth one? That one freaks me out. Okay, what's that thing all about? And we know that the, the beast, at least the body of it, is referring to Rome, the Roman Empire, the destructive Roman Empire. Now remember, I said this last week, but remember, this vision, it, it runs in parallel. It's, it's the other side of the coin of the vision of the statue in chapter two. The four metals uh, is, is the same as the four beasts, So the feet of iron mixed with clay in a statue, Rome, is the fourth beast. Okay, and I don't get too hung up on all this, I'm just reviewing you guys on all this stuff. The point is, is that God wants Daniel to see that human evil is going to continue to grow in its power, that human dominion, note that word, human dominion is going to continue to grow into these massive, destructive, beastly powers, but that's not where the story's gonna end. This fourth beast has horns, and out of those horns comes a little horn, okay? Uh, we uh, sort of talked about the fact that that little horn is probably referring to some kind of an antichrist that will manifest himself out of a, perhaps a, a renewed Roman empire. We don't know, but, but here's what you need to understand about the antichrist. This person is essentially uh, evil personified. It's fallen humanity in its executive figurehead, okay? It's the representation of all human evil, and, and what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus, or the Ancient of Days, I should say, versus the beast, <laughs> okay? It's, it's, a, it's a match. Who's going to win? Okay, we're going to see God the Father and his Son, the Son of Man, versus the beast. And that's kind of where we pick up uh, this morning. Now, we'll talk more about the little horn and the, all that stuff next week, so don't get worried about it. Today, our passage, we're going to focus ex- uh, exclusively on these two figures, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And really, our our, our text has a nice flow to it. We're we're gonna see uh, an individual described, and then we're gonna see something happen. Then we're gonna see another individual described, and then we're gonna see something happen. The first individual is the Ancient of Days. What's gonna happen? He's gonna destroy the beast, spoiler alert. Then we're gonna see the next person, the Son of Man. He's gonna be described, and then something's gonna happen. He's gonna be given the kingdom of God. So that's kind of the flow uh, of, of the text. Now I I just want to say by way of preface that there's a lot of details in this description of these individuals and none of these details are for nothing. Okay, each of them tell us something about the nature and identity and agenda of these individuals, the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. So we're going to slow down and we're going to really pick apart each of these and ask the question, what are these supposed to remind us of about the characteristics of the individual? Okay, Um, what this is meant to do is it's meant to endear our love and our faith to God's nature more than just what God does. See, what God does flows out of who he is. And the description here is very focused on the nature, the characteristics of our God, which is exciting. So, let's just dive right in. You guys ready? Verse nine, okay, we'll start with this description of the Ancient of Days. Now Daniel said, now, just remember, the beast has just been described, don't lose the flow of the text, the beast has been described, and now Daniel looks and he sees another character, and it says in verse nine, as I looked, thrones were placed, And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Let's just stop and kind of interact with some of the the imagery here, because it's all extremely important. The first thing I want you to note is the name of this individual, the Ancient of Days. Okay, now names have meaning, And the biblical authors, when they ascribe names to God, those names carry with them, again, particular characteristics about this person. So what are we supposed to grab about the Ancient of Days, and who is it? Okay, well, it's God the Father. Let's just tell you right now. God the Father is the Ancient of Days. The reason he's referred to as Ancient of Days, he could have been referred to by a lot of things. God has many, God the Father has many names, right? Um, But he's called the Ancient of Days here because we are meant to see his eternality, we are meant to see that he is the uncreated one. We are meant to see that he lives outside of time and precedes time and creates time. He is the ancient of days. Theologians call this his aseity, meaning he is the self-existent independent from creation. He was before creation. He is eternal. This is the God that we serve. Now, in an age of polytheism, the age of the, the, the time of Daniel, um, Daniel uh, sees the father here and uses a name that would set him apart from all of the other gods of the day, similar to what God did when he revealed himself to Moses for the purpose of Pharaoh. He said, I am, I am that I am. In other words, I'm in a category all of myself, all to myself. Now this ancient of days, who is God, notice that he takes his seat He takes a seat, Now, why is that significant? Because as you read the passage, you'll begin to see that this is actually not just a throne room, this is actually a courtroom. You guys ever sat in a court? Uh, As a foster parent and as a pastor, I've sat in a lot of courts, never on the other side. Um, Just so you know, okay, in case you're wondering. uh, I'm sure you were worried. Uh, You know, I've sat in a lot of courts, And, and what happens when the judge walks in the room? The all rise. Okay, everyone stands, it's a respectful space, it's a a space of honor, and and the honor centers around the, the, the supposed or hopeful honor of the judge, right? And so everybody stands, and then once the judge sits, everyone else is allowed to sit. All the attention is on the judge. And this is what's happening in this moment. This is a courtroom setting. So because it's a courtroom setting, the honorable one, the Ancient of Days, walks into the room, everyone is standing, and then he takes his seat. He takes his seat because the purpose of this event is judgment, okay? The court is in session, and as we'll see, the one being judged is the beast, the fourth beast, specifically the little horn, representing all evil, okay? Uh, this, this little beast, this, or this beast and the little horn is, is similar to, I'm not saying uh, Facebook is the Antichrist and I'm not saying Mark Zuckerberg is either, but it's kind of like this. It's kind of like uh, recently Facebook had to sit before the, you know, the, the Congress and, and answer some questions about some seemingly shady stuff that was going on, right? And Zuckerberg, he's there and he's representing all of Facebook and he's really representing all of social media, let's be honest, okay? And in the same way, the little horn is really representing all of evil, godless human government, and he now stands before the Ancient of Days, the perfect, righteous, holy judge. He is the executive figurehead of godless human existence. Now, notice too, by the way, that thrones are placed. Thrones are placed. This means that, that there is a installment of some other thrones around the supreme throne. What's up with that? What are we supposed to think of that? Well, some some scholars think that's referring to uh, what's called the divine council or God's heavenly cabinet. Um, I, I think that's probably not the right translation. I think more specifically, this is referring to what Revelation teaches us later is called the 24 thrones of the 24 elders. You're saying, what's that all about? Well, the 24 elders is probably referring to 12 of the patriarchs and 12 of the disciples, which if you add it up, is the sum total of God's covenant people. I think that these thrones remind us of the fact that when God judges human evil, he's going to do it alongside the partnership of his redeemed human bride. I I think that that, that this puts us in a way in the picture here, that we too will judge with God. We actually learn that in other places in scripture. Paul uses this uh, as an impetus to try to make a point to the Corinthians that they need to get along. Remember, he's like, you guys can't settle your civil disputes within the church? You're gonna judge angels someday. Okay, so I think that's kind of what he's talking about. And by the way, just just in case uh, you you forget, next time you're tempted to not take your faith seriously or your position in Christ seriously, remember what you're gonna do someday. (laughs) God has great plans for what he's going to do with you in terms of of partnership. And I love that God never seeks to, to, to rule alone. We see that from Adam forward. He always looks to share his dominion with his creation. He wants us to partner with him and, and rule, and that's, that's pretty exciting. Now, we're gonna see all these descriptions of the appearance of the Son of Man. Look at, the first one is, his clothing was white as snow. We're still looking at verse nine. <laughs> his clothing was white as snow. That speaks to the purity and the 100% holiness. Holiness, by the way, just means otherness. It means God is completely other than. He is without spot or blemish. There is no unrighteousness in him. The hair of his head, it says, is like pure wool. Now, that doesn't mean that he's senile or old. It means that he's wise. This is referring to, now, he is old, okay? Uh, he's outside of time. But he, he's, he's the ancient of days, okay? But don't picture some, like, shriveled, you know, God, the ancient of days. Like, Jesus, in Revelation 1, in his exalted state, he has gray hair, too. And I think he probably looked 33 years old in that. So I think, I think uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a sign of his wisdom. It's supposed to remind us of his omniscience, okay? The throne, notice the throne is with fiery flame. His, his throne is itself a fiery flame. Fire in the Bible refers to judgment. It reverts to holiness and purity. So this throne uh, is literally going to eviscerate anything that is not righteous and pure and holy, which, by the way, is why we need Jesus, (laughs) because we can't approach the throne of the Holy One without being made pure. God cannot take part in evil. No one will come into the eternal place of God unless they've been purified by an atoning sacrifice. Notice that the throne has burning wheels of fire. (laughs) What? What are we supposed to do with that? Okay, well, Ezekiel helps us a little bit on this. Ezekiel, who by the way was a contemporary of Daniel, he was also an exile who lived um, in Babylon, um, and probably would have known Daniel. Perhaps they, they they would have read each other's literature. I don't know. But Ezekiel, um, he has his own vision. Uh, I believe it's on the banks of the Euphrates, and he has this vision of God as well. And he sees God on a throne, and this God, this throne is not um, it's not fixed. It's mobile. It has wheels. And I think it's the same idea here. And what it's supposed to convey to the exiles, listen to me, is that God's presence is not stuck somewhere. It's mobile. See, God's presence didn't stay in Israel when the exiles were taken out. No, the presence of God followed the remnant. It was there in Babylon with the people of God. And we see that most truly fulfilled in the incarnation. See, God's presence didn't stay in heaven. It came into this earth. And now it lives within the walls of the church and within the individuals of the temple, you and I, the living stones. So God is the God who goes with. That was the whole point of the tabernacle. God was like, hey, don't make it about a place. Okay, put me in a tent because I want you to take me with you. I'm gonna go with you. That's the whole concept. It's the whole idea. I believe of the, the fiery wheels. Now keep going, verse 10. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. A few things here. First of all, the stream of fire, that, that I believe tells us that this, this purity, this holiness, this judgment of God is not passively waiting to judge. It's actively flowing. It's going out to, to judge the world. Now, around the throne as we zoom out, we see this thousands of thousands, thousands 10 times what you you know what I'm saying. Thousands of thousands right. This this inc- I believe these are heavenly hosts, angels that are standing ready to attend to the will of the ancient of days. The angel armies. Why thousands? Why 10,000? That was the highest number that the ancients had in their v- vernacular. So so they they're saying it's a lot. Okay, that's what they're saying. It's a lot, highest number that they had. Uh, there, there is just a, a massive amount of servants, heavenly hosts, ready, standing at attention, ready to be deployed. And then what happens next? The Ancient of Days says, bring me my book. What is the book? The book, very simply, is God's memories of the deeds and the words and the thoughts of every being. Yes, the book is God's memories of the deeds, words, and thoughts of every being. Is that a little scary to you? God never forgets a single thing. He's got it all written down. I don't think he literally has it written in a book, but you get the idea, right? Okay, he's got it all figured out. Now, why is he pulling the books out? He's pulling the books out not to judge all humanity. That's a separate scene. That happens in another place. He's pulling the books out to judge whom? The beast. beast. Because the beast is on trial. See, this is the trial of the beast. And the books are pulled out because the beast has a big mouth. Remember, the beast is speaking great blasphemies against the Ancient of Days. And so judgment is about to take place. Now, I need to make that's why it says they're, they're, they're open. Now, I mean to make a, a quick point here that you shouldn't miss. Your salvation does not rest on how little is written down in God's book of evil, right? We're not Muslims. The Muslims believe that when you die, you're gonna stand before their God and He's to put a big, there's gonna be a great scale. And as long as your good outweighs your bad, you're okay. And I think that's how most Western, evangelical, so-called Christians, I think that's how they think. They're like, as long as I'm pretty good, Not as bad as that guy over there. I didn't mean to point over here. Sorry, Sam. As long as I'm not bad as Sam with two M's, okay. uh, You're Sam with two M's, okay. You know, then I'm good. That's not how it works. The reality is that there is enough written down in God's book to condemn every fallen human a million times over. So what hope is there for me? Where is my salvation? It's not that I don't have... Too much written in one book, listen, it's that my name is written down in another book. What book am I talking about? The Lamb's Book of Life. Look at Daniel chapter 12. You can see it, not right now, but you can look at it on your own. Take a look at Revelation 20, verse 12 through 15. We find that God is another book, and it's not a book of keeping records. It's a book of entrance. It's a book of identity. It's a book of those that he has paid for with his own blood those whom the lamb was slain for. Those that are saved are those that are written down in his book, not those that do more good than bad. Do you understand? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, there's other visions like this in the Bible. We'll talk more about them in a minute. But what's interesting is that all of the visions in the Old Testament like this, there's always a need for atonement to be applied. You can read on your own this week Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a similar experience where he stands before He stands before the ascended uh, and seated Jesus, and he is terrified, and he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of clean lips. He's immediately aware that he cannot stand in the presence of this Holy One. So what happens? An angel comes and pulls a a coal from the, the altar of atonement and applies it to the place of sin. Same thing in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is this vision of Joshua, the high priest, and he's standing before the holy God, and, and Satan is accusing him, and he's clothed in filthy rags. But God in his goodness clothes Joshua in righteous remnant. Now, follow me on this. Let me turn it out on you for a minute. In Revelation, John has a similar vision. Why do you think it is that John doesn't need, or isn't aware of any kind of filthiness, or doesn't need to be, forgiven in any way when John beholds the resurrected Jesus. Why do you think in the book of Revelation? Because it's after the cross. Isaiah, Zechariah, they're all terrified. Oh man, John, he's, he's atoned for. He's been made righteous because Jesus has come and died on the cross. So God's judgment flows from his nature. Do you notice that the judgment flows out of the throne of his nature? So we can trust what he does because we know who he is. And that's the point. So that's the Ancient of Days. Now let's see what he does. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words. So Daniel turns around because he hears this great boast of this little horn that speaks great words, great blasphemies that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. The book was opened. The beast is destroyed. That's good news. As the blasphemy is coming out and reverberating out of the mouth of this little horn, the Ancient of Days righteously judges and destroys this beast. Evil is destroyed bodily, existentially, and eternally. All three. Hell was designed primarily for Satan and the demons. And it is eternal fire. But anyone that lines up behind him will follow behind him. Now remember the symmetry of this with Daniel chapter two. Remember what happened to the great statue? It was destroyed by a great stone. It's the same thing happening here. The beast is destroyed by the Ancient of Days. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken up or taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Oh man, do I have time to get into that? Um, This is a controversial passage, and uh, depending on what your, your eschatology is, you have different views on this. Um, let me just give you a few potential uh, ways of looking at this because people ask the question, okay, what does that mean? First of all, when does this beast get destroyed? And second of all, what does it mean that that the other beasts were allowed to to live on? Um, well, those in what's called the preterist camp, not predatorist, preterist, you can Google it, preterist view, they see this destruction of the beast as referring to the cross and as uh, sort of the toppling of the Roman government they would see almost everything in the book of Revelation up to, I think, chapter 20 as being fulfilled in 70 A.D. Um, and, and, and so they, they think that the prolonged means the season we're in right now. They think we're in some kind of a spiritual millennium uh, right now. And there's a lot of respectable Christians that we love that believe that. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't jump into that camp. I would be more in what's called a futurist interpretation of this, that, that what we're waiting for still is the slaying of the beast that this beast is still yet to be destroyed and that it refers to, to uh, the Antichrist in the time of the tribulation and that the prolonged of the season is probably a millennial reign of some sort. That the, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that um, the, the beast uh, is destroyed and then there's a thousand-year reign, but yet evil is allowed to endure through that thousand-year reign and then there's one final, once and for all destruction of it. I, I think that's what it's referring to. Uh, if I did, hopefully I didn't lose you in all that. Come back to me. The main point is clear. God's foot is on evil's neck and he will be decapitated and its body will be destroyed forever. Can anyone amen that? Okay, and I don't care what your eschatology is, every orthodox Christian agrees with that. Okay, evil, God has got his foot on its neck. The snake's head is gonna be cut off. It's only a matter of time. That's the point of what Daniel's supposed to see here. Good is gonna win because God is gonna win because God is holy and sovereign and righteous and over all things there will be no kingdom realization without evil's total annihilation. Note that. There will be no kingdom realization without evil's total annihilation. Now, let's look at the next guy, the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, note that, there came one like a Son of Man. I think there's three things we're supposed to really get about this son of man. You'll see him as we continue to read this. The first thing is his divinity. We're supposed to see his divinity. And this is the thing, by the way, that got Jesus killed. Okay? This thing got Jesus killed because he, he connected himself to this figure, and this figure is, he, he, though he is one like a son of man, he is not merely a man. He comes in the clouds. You gotta understand that the clouds refer to divinity, glory, and majesty. What filled the temple? What filled the tabernacle? The glory of God came in a cloud. How did God lead his people in Israel? Through a pillar and a cloud. What did God show up in on the top of Mount Sinai when he met with Moses? A cloud. It's glory. It's God's glory, God's presence. The purpose of the Son of Man coming on the clouds is that he is robed in the glory of God. Now, whether or not he's gonna literally be surfing the top of a cloud, I don't know, okay? Uh, the, the ancient rabbis would call the Messiah the cloud rider. So maybe, or maybe it just means that he emerges from a cloud, I don't know. The point is, this is a divine being. This is God the Son. We are meant to associate Jesus showing up in clouds as Jesus' exalted state, okay? Jesus didn't come in the clouds when he was born in Bethlehem, Why? because that wasn't his exalted state. That was his state of humiliation. Jesus had to be humiliated so that he could be exalted. He came first as the suffering servant. He comes again as the exalted lamb, as the lion, right? So whenever you see Jesus on the clouds, you better know he's gonna do business, okay? Now in this scene, Jesus is coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. There's coming a time in the end where the Son of Man, Jesus, will come on the clouds to this world. And it's gonna be pretty crazy. Okay, so that's the point of the clouds. I want you to see that he is an exalted, divine being. So we're supposed to see his divinity. The second thing, though, we're supposed to see is that his humanity. Not only his divinity, but his humanity. He is like a son of man. He is a human-like appearance. No, notice it says, like a son of man. He's not only human, yet... He has human characteristics. He has a humanness to him. Well, who could that possibly be referring to? Who can you think of that is fully God and truly man? Who can you think of that is God, has all divine authority and glory, yet took on humanity into his essence and kept it when he went to heaven? This is Jesus. This is the son of man. It's Jesus. There's no question. We see the dual nature of Christ here that we study in the book of Evers. He's fully God. He's truly man. And you're saying, Sam, what does it matter that he's man? What does it matter that he's like a son of man? Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, it means that we have di- divine connectivity with God. We have a high priest. The throne of the Ancient of Days is pretty terrifying. The son of man is the interface for us to the throne of the Ancient of Days. He's our great high priest. In Revelation chapter 1, there's a similar vision to this, and Jesus is clothed in priestly garments Because he is our eternal high priest. And he walks in the midst of the lampstands, which is the churches. He's in the midst of his people. The good news of the Son of Man is that we have access to God, the Father. Because Jesus came as a man. Also divine solidarity with humanity. This Son of Man understands what it is to live a human life. That's what Hebrews taught us, right? When we taught Hebrews. Jesus is our high priest that relates with us because he lived the full human existence. He drank the full human cup. So he can relate with us, but it also means a new trajectory, a new figurehead, and a new destiny for humanity. Okay, and we'll get more into that in a minute. Now, he came to the Ancient of Days, or in verse 13. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. I want you to see this. This is supposed to contrast the former scene. What happened in the former scene? The Ancient of Days takes a seat, and one was presented before him. Who was it? It was the beast, the little horn. Why was he presented? He was presented to be weighed. He was presented to be prosecuted, and he was found guilty and destroyed. Now, another one is being presented to the Ancient of Days, but this one is not the little horn. This one is one like the Son of Man. The little horn is the executive figurehead of human evil. Jesus is the executive figurehead of redeemed humanity. He is presented before the Father, But instead of being slain, instead of being judged, what is is he given? To him was given, verse 14, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, oh, yes, thank you. If you missed it, the outline is Jesus is... Divinity, we're supposed to see in the son of man his divinity his humanity and thirdly his royalty his divinity his humanity and his royalty he's god he is man and he's a king he's a king because he's presented before the ancient of days and the ancient of days presents him with a kingdom so this is a heavenly coronation this is an inauguration of a future kingdom He's given dominion and he's given glory. He's given a kingdom. The whole Bible is about the kingdom of God. You know that? The garden was like a kingdom. God planted it and he put stewards to have and share that dominion, Adam and Eve. And they botched it. Not only did they botched it, they turned it against him. The whole biblical story is about God restoring dominion back to humanity through a new executive figurehead Jesus Christ, a new Adam. Isn't that cool? Dominion is given back to humanity through the true human, Jesus, the Christ. It's the whole point. It's why Jesus talks so much about the kingdom. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. He was trying to get us to see this is the full deal. This is all that God's been doing. And the kingdom is much greater than just ethnic Israel. The kingdom is much greater than any one facet. It's all of God's rule fully realized on the earth. I want you to note some specific things about the kingdom that we learn in this this verse. First of all, it's universal. All peoples, nations, and languages. That's not to be confused with universalism. Do you understand the difference? Universalism says all people are going to go to heaven no matter who they are. That's not not what the Bible says. So it's a universal kingdom, meaning all those that are in it will be all those that are in the earth. At one point, there will only be those on the earth that, that serve God. It's a universal kingdom. It's diverse, diverse languages and people groups. We see this in the book of Revelation. All na- languages, nations uh, will come and will serve him. So it's universal. Uh, it's, m- number two, it's monarchical. Okay. Th- to him was given the kingdom and the dominion and the glory. I hate to break it to you, but democracy is not God's eternal vision for the world. Okay? Benevolent dictatorship. Jesus is the king. He gets all the rights. Now, we already learned he sets down some thrones, meaning he has plans to partner with us in his eternal kingdom, which is cool. But it's his kingdom. He's the king. He's the point. Third thing you need to see about the kingdom is it's undestroyable. Notice it says it's everlasting, shall not pass away or be destroyed. This is meant to contrast with us, uh, with the kingdoms of the beasts that are taken away and destroyed. They're temporal. They're not eternal. One kingdom lasts forever, and it's the kingdom of the son of man. When is this all gonna happen? Sam is the question you might be asking, okay? Uh, When is this all gonna happen? Uh, Right, pull out your calendar. (laughs) I don't know. I know this, I know that the kingdom of God is now inaugurated and we are now simply waiting for the kingdom of God to be consummated. That's the theological terms, okay? Uh, the, The kingdom comes in three parts. It's God's people, under God's power, in God's place. We are God's people. We're living under God's power. Now we're just waiting for God's place, okay? So, so we're in this in-between space. We're waiting, we're, we're between two advents. Jesus has come and he's coming again. He's been given the kingdom spiritually, now we're waiting for him to be given the kingdom physically. Okay, we're, we're somewhere in here, I don't know. There's a telescoping effect to this text that, that it, it doesn't really concern itself too much with the chronology. The point is, evil's gonna die, God's gonna judge it, the kingdom's gonna be given to the Son of Man and all those who are in the Son of Man. That means all those who have faith in Jesus Christ will populate this forever kingdom that will be made up of all nations. This is pretty cool stuff, right? I mean, the gospel's really good news, and the Bible's really cool. Now, what do we do with this? Let's just step back and try to to sum it up a little bit. This is probably one of the coolest passages I've ever had the privilege of teaching. And I, I would encourage you guys to, to put a sticky note on it and read it all the time, okay? Uh, this is incredible. What should be our main takeaway from this passage? What encouragement, <laughs> what, what isn't encouraging about this for, for the people of God? But what, what should be the main takeaway for us? I think we need to step back now and we need to just remember the setting in which this vision was given. Um, by the way, I need to amend something. I, I said last week that this, this vision took place between chapters five and six. I was actually, I meant to say chapters four and five. Uh, it's at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign, okay. And Belshazzar uh, was probably the the, the king that, that had the least connectivity to Yahweh. It's 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 probably obvious, or it's probably easy to say that that the Israelites at this particular moment, uh, the Jews were get, were were at the a, a particularly hard space. In their, in their existence, in their, heart, in their time. And that Daniel and the exiles would have felt very much like ants on the ground while these beasts are tussling above them and, and they're gonna get squashed. I think that's the feeling that the exiles would have been having. That, that human evil was out of control, that the beastliness of the world was going to win. And had God forgotten them They'd been plucked out of their homeland. They'd been brought away into exile. And now this new king, Belshazzar, that has no respect for Yahweh, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, is in charge, and Daniel's in retirement. And What's going to happen to the exiles? And as Daniel's head hits the pillow, he wakes up in this vision. And, and I think the point is, is that God gifts the gift of clarity to his kids when they're in particularly hard seasons and spaces. the clarity that we need here is not just what am I supposed to do, which is the question we always ask. What am I supposed to do? It's the number one question I get as a pastor. And that's okay. It's a good question. What am I supposed to do this? What am I supposed to do about that? What am I supposed to do about this? I don't know. Here's what you're supposed to see. You're supposed to see the king of the universe. You're supposed to see the ancient of days has given all dominion into the Son of Man. You're supposed to see that the beast is gonna die. You're supposed to see that God wins that's what we are supposed to see. We need a bigger vision of God. That's the answer. We're so concerned with what we're going to do because we want God to bless us. We want to get stuff right so he does what we want him to do. But what God's concerned about is the way we think, the way we look. What are we seeing right now? Are, we, are the heavens cracked open in the scope of your mind? Are you seeing Christ exalted on the throne? We're supposed to see Daniel chapter 7. That's why Jesus called himself the Son of Man because he wanted to fuse himself to the vision of Christ that we just read. He didn't want them just to think about him as this lowly, humiliated carpenter. He wanted them to see that he is now right at the right hand of the Father, right this moment, exalted, high, and lifted up, that the title deed of the cosmos is in his hands. He's got all power right now. That's how we're supposed to see him. And the problems that we think are so important in our life really start to shrink down when we realize that Jesus is high and lifted up all kinds of visions were given through the bible to different people of jesus on the throne here's my favorite one acts chapter 7 verse 55 stephen this is shortly after the birth of the church jesus ascended after his resurrection the church is doing great things pentecost gospel's going all over the place churches are being planted and stephen we're going to close here don't lose me stephen this fiery evangelist gets ripped out of his house in the middle of the night, stripped naked, and begins to be stoned with rocks for his passionate commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He presents the gospel to them in his closing arguments before he dies, and it says this, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. God gave Stephen the vision of Daniel chapter 7 right before his head was smashed in with a rock. Notice what Daniel says, or not Daniel, notice what Stephen says. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. What we see in Stephen is we see Jesus' character forgiving them as he's being murdered by them. Why, because Stephen had the right perspective. He had a Daniel chapter seven sized perspective. He saw Jesus ascended high and lifted up. I would suggest to you that's one of the number one deficiencies in the diet of Western Christians. We do not have a big enough picture of the glory and the sovereignty, superiority of Jesus. And if we did, it would change every facet of our life. Jesus has authority over every molecule of your existence. He claimed that for himself. That truth will either lead you to worship him or destroy him, or change him, as though a lot of people are doing in our culture. Amen? I'm gonna end there. Would you guys stand with me? Let's pray. James, you can come on up. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what we mean by that, Father, is that your name is holy. It's Mm -hmm. sacred. It's high and lifted up. And we pray your kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven. And by that we mean, Lord, would your kingdom be manifested physically as it has already been purchased spiritually. Lord, of course we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We we pray that you would give us provision. We pray that you would not lead us, Lord, into evil, that you would preserve us. But God, most importantly, I pray that you would open our vision, open our sight, open the eyes of our heart to see to a greater degree just how good and true and patient and loving and holy you are. I thank you, Father, that you are so pleased with us because you are so pleased with the Son of Man, that the favor that the Son of Man found at the throne is the favor that we now enjoy because we are in Jesus. Lord, we love you and we now sing to you, God, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.